0: Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order.
1: It's because you both have to have a personal practice, but then you have to, the the, the pedal meets the metal in that treatment room. You can't just sit on your butt somewhere and and believe you've got it. You, you really do have to manifest it in a way that is profoundly interactive with someone and, and and feel and watch the outcome, so and the energetic systems that we learn, the channels, the points, the internal Chinese medical theory is all about uh, naming the landscape of this other realm, so if we can uh, step into the experientially and then apply the terms there, I think it enriches us.
2: Seriously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Welcome to Everyday Acupuncture, everybody. Today, I've got Paul Karsten with me. Paul is the found, one of the founders of the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine. He's a longtime practitioner, both of Chinese medicine and of Zen meditation, and uh, currently works as the dean at the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine. And we're here to talk some about this curious paradox that many practitioners find themselves in where we're supposed to know a whole lot about medicine and we're supposed to know a whole lot about helping people. And yet, often starting with this beginner's mind sense of don't really know what's happening in this moment yet, turns out to be a great place to start. So Paul, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning, Michael. Thank you very much. Great to be here.
2: Yeah, good to have you here. I'm I'm looking at a picture of you here on Skype, and you're sitting on the top of some mountain, apparently somewhere in China. Correct. Where are you?
1: In the Huangshan Mountains. Um, my visit to China, since the mountains are largely considered the, the gods in China, I climbed several to uh, see if I could discover such God energy, and this particular mountain is uh, somewhat known for its uh, role as uh, in doubt and uncertainty, which is a, a long-time favorite activity for someone who practices Zen or does acupuncture.
2: Yeah, well, that's perfect for our show here today. I can remember, now this was quite a while back when I was a student at the Seattle Institute, and you were one of my teachers, and... There was a lot of time spent studying lots of material so that we would know a whole bunch of stuff. And yet, at the same time, we would then go into clinic and look at all these people, try to help all these people, and really not have a clue as to where to start. The more that I've practiced this medicine, the more I seem to have fallen into a place where starting with not knowing as contradictory as that sounds, seems to be kind of helpful. And I was wondering about your thoughts on this uh, not knowing stuff.
1: Well, I think the just as you have evolved as a practitioner, the education at SIOM has evolved over the decades since you were there as well. Um. Certainly one of my fundamental intents in the school, which I believe we've manifested more effectively recently, is to have more of a balance in the sense of students exploring both how to be uh, effective and competent in analysis and in their the knowledge that you spoke of, but also effective in completely letting that go in order to be present in that particular moment with the patient, whether that is to listen or to touch or to insert a needle, or to simply pause to get a deeper sense of what uh, we believe is going on. and so. That has taken us a lot more into activities like qigong, meditation, palpation practice to help balance that sense of how you really need to discover both practices, the practice to be able to think clearly and the practice not to think.
2: Tell me more about this not thinking practice. This this seems, I'm, I suspect our listeners might think, a medical practitioner not thinking, why would I want to go see them?
1: Well, in our medicine, I think it is fairly straightforward. We have embedded, probably at the foundation of what we believe and practice and attempt to experience, this experience and concept known as chi. And in my practice, this is similar to what you were talking about uh, using the words not knowing that when we get into this place of clear intention and presence we more deeply experience what we are calling chi and we therefore more deeply experience I think the fundamental activity that we call life and from that place We have what could be called non-cognitive or non-intellectual, but we have a direct experience and connection with the patient. And that capacity for meeting the patient, and in a sense, both of us disappearing in that relationship, I believe is critical, for instance, in the simple activity of needle insertion. Mm-hmm. So I realize I'm sort of stretching between the the uh, practice and the spiritual, but I feel pretty firmly that those are intertwined when you are uh, facing another person who is suffering.
2: I'm curious to hear about how you use needles to, to address suffering.
1: Mm. I remember once uh, years ago, Michael, I think you... Uh, wrote in on our alumni, what do you call them, chat group or conversation group or whatever.
2: Yeah, we've got some sort of email group there.
1: Yeah, you brought up the question about the experience that patients feel when they're on the table sometimes, when they're needled and they sort of go into this other place, whether we call it deep relaxation or some people even call it an experience of trance or meditative state, but there is a a place of peacefulness that we, we know patients can reach when they receive acupuncture. And I'm suggesting that same kind of experience is what's important to have as the practitioner when you are needling the patient. So in a sense, uh, one of the Phrases I use when I speak to students these days is a, a close to paraphrase of Gandhi, be the change you want to see created in the world. And so for me in patient care, it starts with me being in that state. And then with the belief that that will have an impact in my patient care.
2: Right. Let me make sure that I'm tracking this there's a state that the practitioner can be in that it, you could even think of it as an invitation for the patient to join them as the needling process occurs. Is that Does that resonate?
1: I believe it's close enough, um, Michael. I think when we use words to try to get around this, they're always going to be a bit faulty.
2: Yeah, there is that, isn't it?
1: I would also use the, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of different examples. Let's say in partner dancing, that place where two people meet, where when they move in dancing, where it it actually isn't leader or follower. There's some place you get in there. Uh, I I think, uh, you know, in basketball, it might be called being in the zone or something. Um, I I believe there's a, a state of meeting that transcends our individuality, and in a very simple basis, if we keep our intention and focus when we're inserting needles, I think adding just a little drop of that every time with every needle. But obviously, I think to do that, you can't be also thinking about your rent or the next patient or even the your your diagnosis of this patient that much when you are doing that practice you need to be completely present in that moment for this sort of experience to occur and that takes training and practice i believe to to do that on a conscious basis
2: yeah i can remember one of the other teachers at the school when i was there would teach us about palpation Mm -hmm. and especially in the beginning stages of this we were invited to feel and feel what we feel. But don't think about what we're feeling. First feel, first sense. And then later, after you have a sense of, of, of what might be there, just a, a sense of, of what's present, then bring the conscious mind into it and uh, and see what it has to say. But don't go to that first, sort of, and, and don't get rid of it either but just kind of leave it idling on the side.
1: Yeah. I I believe that captures it well. Uh, We're born into this world essentially as babies that feel first, and later on we gain consciousness of that. And I, I suggest that even in each moment in life, that same sort of process goes on. So that when you're inserting a needle, I I suggest that yes, you want to first feel what is happening when you touch someone or when you insert a needle. And then from that experience comes the realization of consciously <clears throat> of what is important or necessary to do or how to describe that. So, uh, And if we uh, obstruct that process by staying in our thinking mind for the whole time. Uh, I believe we missed the boat, so to speak.
2: Mm-hmm. This seems a long, long way from the modern day idea and value toward this thing called evidence-based medicine.
1: Well, again, I want to emphasize – and and I, let me pause here to uh, mention a little 18-minute TED talk that uh, I – Uh, generally show the students when they first come now called a stroke of insight which is a little talk by a a brain a woman who is a brain researcher who actually uh, uh, had a stroke and under describes very clearly sort of the experience from the point of view of the left brain and the right brain which is her approach to uh, describing this and I bring that up because I think it's very uh, useful in, in training and in practice to be really clear that we do need to be able to be a strong individual that has knowledge and training and a capacity for diagnosis and clinical reasoning, and we can look to our past into the cases and, to our, and our study and come up with the best diagnosis and treatment plan we can. That aspect of us is I believe critical in practice and probably as you know most emphasized in the West as being science or medicine mm-hmm. and On the other side, as this researcher discovered when she had a stroke, there is this other capacity of our being which tra- which goes to a place where there is really no individual, there is no past and future, there is simply this present moment and in that experience you have entirely different sensory capacity in this world and I'm suggesting that that is as vital if not more primal than our capacity to think and as a healer, as a practitioner, as a physician, I suggest we need to develop both capacities.
2: I've often heard stories, and this isn't just Chinese medicine, this is brilliant practitioners of of really all stripes of medicine, that they sometimes see patients and they come up with this idea or they get this glimpse of what's actually happening for the person, and they come up with a treatment that is just so far out of the box, people think they're crazy. And yet... Sometimes people are helped tremendously by this kind of thing. It makes for a lot of discomfort, though. Discomfort with the practitioner when they're thinking way outside the box that they usually think in. Uncomfortable for the patient. Anything that, so what's my question here? I've got, I've got a question that's underlying this. I think it has something to do with how to cultivate some comfort. With not knowing?
1: You're getting at what I think is one of the more important questions in education and also, obviously, clinical practice, as well as maybe just about any other human activity in the world. So let's turn to uh, the example of music. It is important, if you start playing an instrument without any training, Uh, simply feeling what you feel, maybe you come up with some good sounds and, and maybe you don't if you get formal training in scales and such, and I'm not a a musician by any means, so uh, bear with me here, but you, you, you learn standard songs and you follow certain rules of the practice, you can get very well trained in the specifics of how to do that. And if you leave it there, then you probably are a very good technician in terms of music. But if you go beyond that, to the place where I suggest there's a meeting point, a balance point, a harmony point, uh, vocabulary again, between that sort of skilled practice and training and this other realm, which is really, as I described before, the realm of chi or presence, where those meet together in the moment magical or intuitive or surprising or unorthodox things can occur. And I suggest in some of the greatest music, jazz comes to mind, you're more likely to see that melding uh, of both someone who is well-trained but also is able to go, in a sense, beyond that training or uh, get underneath it. And I think as you have practitioners that go along further and further in their life, that sort of opening that is between or combines these two sides of things becomes more developed and they trust it more. Part of it is trusting that place you're describing and being able to have a clear intention with your patient to, to go for that. And as you said, that can sometimes be disconcerting for both the practitioner and sometimes the patient if they know that's going on. But it can be remarkable as well.
2: I've certainly noticed in my practice lots of times people come in to see an acupuncturist because they've already seen a bunch of doctors and maybe a chiropractor and a, or two and a naturopath, and I mean, all kinds of practitioners, right? So they're coming in to see the Chinese medicine practitioner, and they don't feel well. They've got something going on. The tests are probably inconclusive, and they just want to know what's going on. I've had patients say things like, I just want a diagnosis. I just want to know. And I I can really feel the suffering, that's in their voice, and the suffering that's in them. That if there was simply a way to grasp what's happening in life and put a name on it, that it's somehow going to change the situation. And yet, I find that that's rarely the case. You know, I mean, you get a you put a name on it. Well, now there's a diagnosis, which usually means X Y Z treatment. But the problem for me with the diagnosis is now we've limited everything to this particular diagnosis, and anything that might be outside of that becomes more accessible. What if the diagnosis is wrong or it's just not complete?
1: Well, and as I was listening to you, one of the things that came up was the question of what ultimately is our, our goal in patient care? What is it that patients truly want? What is it that is our true intention here? Is it to stop pain? Is that why they come so we will get rid of their pain for them? Is it to to stop their anxiety or help them sleep better? These are all obviously important concerns that people have and probably what starts them coming into the clinic, but I think is that we have to really look deeply at what we're about and it's probably gonna be a personal answer for each of us as practitioner and potentially for each patient as well for me the word that leaps up is liberation that my goal and intention with patients is liberation now that maybe sounds odd as a practitioner but I am not so sure we can always relieve people of their pain, but if we can find a place where they have presence and acceptance in their life and have a feeling of freedom in their life, even when they feel a sense of discomfort, somehow that, to me, strikes at a deeper chord than than the the simple relief of pain. Again, this is my personal perspective and i don't know that it reflects that of uh, practitioners in our field or in general what do you think michael
2: Hmm. well i've certainly seen well let's just take pain for an example because acupuncture is famous for treating pain and a lot of people come to my clinic and i suspect go to many acupuncture clinics because they're looking for some relief from pain um, and we'll just talk physical pain here for a moment. Of course, there's the emotional pain and anxiety, and all you know, all kinds of other issues where people are suffering and they come in. But I'm going to talk about just physical pain for a moment. People come in and they want to get rid of it, and there are cases where that can be done. Uh, shoulders can work a whole lot better. Uh, people with golfer's elbow go out and you know play some really great games of golf, and it never comes back. There's that. But there also often will come a point in a person's life where the body just doesn't do what the body used to do. And there may not be the ability to live pain-free. But it seems, I've seen this happen in, in my clinic, where even though people still have pain, somehow their relationship with pain shifts and they suffer less. Now, is it because the pain is less? Is it because they've got a different perspective? Is it because they found some spaciousness and changed their story about their pain? I don't know. But I've noticed that it sometimes happens. And by the same token, I've noticed that there are people who will very quickly leave uh, an acupuncture practice because they simply want the pain to be gone. Even though no doctor has been, ab- been able to help them get the pain completely gone. And so it brings up for me this question of, in, 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 to use a phrase of yours, to find some liberation, to find some spaciousness in the experience where maybe there's pain, but there's, but there's a lot more in life than just the pain. And so that shifts the pain.
1: I think in a way you are talking about this not knowing function that we spoke of earlier that is occurring more in the patient. We did a little tiny outcome study once in the school a few years back, which uh, I, I w- really struck me as well as the students who participated in it. When we evaluated people's pain and we gave them treatments and then we did another evaluation again and it just happened that one of the questions that was put on that survey by the student was one about acceptance as well not simply a gradation of the pain but about acceptance of their life and of the pain and of their experience in the world and what we found was with the various patients, there were varying degrees of how much or how little the acupuncture helped with their physical pain. But across the board, there was a, a general strong feeling, a significant change in their sense of acceptance of where they were in life with that pain, and, and in fact, otherwise as well. And I've seen this in uh, various realms people who claim or believe they're overweight and have anxiety and come to get reduction of their weight. Again, I often see that the, the patients that I believe we do effective care, uh, they, they gain a, a sense of accepting where they are. Not that they, they're going to just live with that, but that acceptance of the moment empowers them in a different way than when they feel like they've got to come to get rid of something. And and to me, that is striking at this experience of not knowing, of, of being completely here now in as full a way as we can be. And acupuncture really appears to help people find that state. And to me, that is maybe one of its more important roles and one of the one that is least maybe talked about since evidence based medicine for the most part isn't exploring that particular question as much
2: hope you're enjoying the show i'd love to know about what topics are of interest to you if you have a health concern or if you want to know specifics about how acupuncture can help to promote vibrant well-being, visit the website at www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and send an email. One of the things that I find with acupuncture is it tends to drop people directly and deeply into just exactly where they happen to be. So what do I mean by that? I have some patients who will get off the table and they go home, they come back the next week and I ask them how their treatment was. How did they feel after their last treatment? They go, I was exhausted. And I've had other people that come back and say, I felt great, I was energized and clear and and calm. And what I've found with the people who come back and have reported that they were exhausted the truth is they are exhausted. They've been running on inertia for so long, they've actually got no fuel in the tank. And the acupuncture didn't make them tired. The acupuncture revealed their actual current state of exhaustion. And from there, they can start to make some choices about what they're doing with their life. It's, it's very curious to me how by simply falling deeper into what is actually happening in in the moments of our life as we're experiencing it, that change will naturally unfold itself, often in very, very surprising ways.
1: Yeah, I think you're, you're in a sense, giving a definition to the words that you started this conversation with, this not knowing or what i would sometimes call you know the the chi state and what some patients call the la la state or or uh, uh but we also through meditation through yoga through qigong through uh you know walking in the woods all these places help us to uh be more in contact with this feeling this experience that you're describing and and become more honest. Acupuncture is, in a sense, causing us to become more honest with our chi, with our health. And then, as you said, sometimes people go home and they're tired. They can be angry and go ferocious on their mate that night for some completely unknown reason because, in a sense, we are often opening doors to the places that they have kept closed or ignored. And that is part of being able to unveil the present moment. And it's important for those experiences. And so, yes, it it is uh, a a very uh, special practice, I believe. And therefore, as practitioners, we have the responsibility to enter that room, I believe, uh, with that sort of presence.
2: I have found... That the more I practice, the more, um, what's the best way to say this? The more I practice, I guess I'd say the more that I find I listen. And why is it that I listen more? The answer to that is because increasingly I have no idea what's going on with people. But often patients do know what's going on with themselves. And if given an opportunity to really sort of wander through that, I will often hear very clearly aspects of the patient that the patient absolutely doesn't see for themselves. And yet, if they could just connect up with that part, they would have their own answers.
1: And I'll take a sidestep for a moment and suggest that... As a practitioner and as a patient, I think we need to remember that fundamentally, life is a mystery, that we really don't have any clue on the deepest level of what's going on or what will go on or why. We are, as best we can, with the skills and training and practice and intuition, seeking to find the path that we we sense will be most in harmony, or most balanced, or most healthy, or bring well-being. And as you just noted, when we're most effective at doing that, the outcome is often that the patient gets more clarity about their life or about where they're going. And as you mentioned earlier, they make better decisions as well. I remember one patient I had that everything I did, it seemed to the patient did the opposite of what I expected. The treatment seemed to actually make things worse left and right and, and, and I was completely puzzled by what was going on. Even though the patient in the moment felt incredible peacefulness, they always would come back with results that weren't so positive. And then We reached a point where the patient all of a sudden realized that the job they had was absolutely killing them, and they quit, and they went to do that which they really wanted to do, and all their symptoms disappeared. And so my sense of my role in that was to potentially help the relationship to helped the patient become more clear as to where they were at. And uh, it was a struggle, but ultimately, I believe that it was improved by the relationship we had. So, yes, it's surprising what can occur in relationship.
2: I think it was at the uh, graduation ceremony that I went through from SIOM, and uh, one of the other teachers at the school gave a little talk, and I believe he said something to the effect of, "There's what the patient thinks is wrong. There's what the practitioner thinks is wrong, and then there's what the problem actually is." Which at the time I thought was really kind of funny, in a in a jovial way. I had actually no clue as to really the the depth of that in recognizing my own ignorance as a practitioner, a patient's own ignorance, often of very important parts of themselves, as you just mentioned with this person who discovered that their job was killing them, that so often our mind will think, if I just get X, then I will attain a certain felt sense of Y, and I'm going to be happy and I want Y. But that is often not the case. You know, there's lots of people that reach whatever pinnacle they've been striving to get to, where they've reached some level of success that they were hoping for, or maybe even begin to recover health in a way that actually does not at all land them in a state of contentment or feeling like, yes, this is what I attempted to get. It's just not the way I thought it would be. So this honoring of not really knowing what's right for the patient And being able to accompany them in discovering what is, for me at any rate, it can be a damn uncomfortable process. Because people are coming to me looking for answers, and they're looking for relief, and they're paying me good hard-earned money at the same time.
1: Yeah, we're getting into the really sort of uh, tricky place here. Because as you know from your training at Siome, our supervisors generally expect you to come up with a diagnosis and be able to reason through it and that it makes sense logically and that you have a treatment plan and intention. And I don't believe we forego that as we go off into practice as well, that as best we can, we still need to... Come up with our hypothesis. A diagnosis, to me, is a hypothesis, mm-hmm. and we uh-huh. we test it in a sense by doing our treatment and seeing what happens. And both the patient and and the person, the other person, and ourselves, we, we we move together to to find the 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 place of. of how, I'll use this word of harmony, but it is a moment to moment thing. And uh, what our diagnosis or what our hypothesis was last week, we may continue for a series of treatments, but we also need to be ready to completely give it up and listen, as you said, to what appears in that moment. So on one hand, we have to act like we know what we're doing and the story and the hypothesis and the diagnosis that we believe is the best and on the other hand we have to hold this place of mystery and listening and awareness that we are ready to move if we if need be in an entirely different way or accept whatever comes our way and so this dichotomy i believe is is really difficult especially as a young practitioner to hold maybe as we get long in the tooth as you're getting these days, it becomes a, a, a bit easier to hold both the uncertainty and at the same time sound like a true professional.
2: Well, the, the certainty piece, actually not so much the certainty piece, but the, the part about having a diagnosis and having a hypothesis and having a sense of what might be going on, this for me goes right back to what you were talking about earlier with music that there are certain structures, there are certain frameworks, there are chords, there are ways of putting things together. And if you can't put the basic tinker toy pieces together, it's going to be really hard to build something. And so being able to do that piece, I think, is really important. At the same time, if you want to play jazz or if you want to help people with complex problems, the ideas that we have in our head and the theories that we have aren't going to be able to help everybody all the time because people are not books, right? It's very rare that you see someone that's actually by the book sort of situation. The other thing that comes up for me in this is the word that you just use, hypothesis. And I think very much the same way, that a diagnosis is very much a hypothesis. And, you know, when you think about how a scientist actually works, they they don't really know what's going on, right? Scientists come up with questions. Scientists look at things and go, huh, I wonder if it works like this. And they'll come up with a hypothesis, and then they'll find out by testing it, is that true or not? You know, And a real scientist is as happy to get a no answer as a yes answer. They're just looking for a little bit of clarity.
1: Yes, the, the interesting dilemma difficulty we face as practitioners now is that often we have patients who want results now, much like they might expect if they got a pill from a doctor that they would feel or get a result pretty quickly. But in fact, it's often a relationship of getting to know one another and getting to know what's going on that can take several treatments. I remember one of my favorite most respected Chinese teachers I've ever had when he would get up to talk often what he would give is a case study where he fundamentally didn't get it for three four five six eight treatments and he would walk us through the various hypotheses and what he would do and then the information you get from that and then he'd ponder that deeply and feel pulses and 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 then he would move to what he think it was the next idea for treatment, and he would give us these series. And ultimately, uh, maybe one of the reasons he's a very good practitioner, he would find that key that through all of this that unlocked the situation, the condition, the chi, and there would be this transformation that could occur with the patient. But what that requires is that the patient is willing to stick with you. And being an old Chinese guy who looked apart, he developed that role with, with patients. But often for, for especially young graduates, if patients don't see results in a week or two, they're often out the door. And that makes it very challenging given the nature of chi, the nature of the relationship that we're establishing. Uh, in, in many situations. So, um, yes, uh, you know, uh, it, it almost takes a conversation with the patient about the time frame and the relationship and, and this way of thinking, which maybe they've never heard before in their experiences, in, in medicine at least.
2: Yeah. I These days I actually have a, a two-page... Sort of introduction to Chinese medicine, introduction to working with me. And and I spell some of that out. That, you know, if you're looking for quick results, you, you might find it here. But I'm looking to get more at the root of things and to get it at just the branch. And uh, if, if you're just looking for symptom alleviation, you should probably look elsewhere. It may not be a good fit. You know, in just hearing what you were talking about, and when I think of some of the best teachers I've had, they, they do. They tend to start off, if they're giving a case study, they'll tell you about how they really screwed it up. Um, or how they, maybe screwed up is not the right way to say it. They're, they'll go through the process of how they just didn't get it until they finally got it. And what I've found is, yes, it's helpful if a patient is willing to go on that journey. But it's also helpful, as speaking as a practitioner, if I'm willing to go on that journey. It sometimes takes a tremendous tolerance for failure, for not having it completely dialed in, to be able to get to the place where there's enough of a vision and there's enough information to be able to get a glimpse of what what might be helpful for somebody. So we, you know, as a practitioner, I think we all love to help people. I mean, we're drawn to this because we want to serve. And yet sometimes in that very process of serving, we have to become very comfortable with, ooh, I don't quite understand what's going on here yet. Failure is a tough thing to sit with. Have you got any um, thoughts about cultivating failure?
1: (laughs) Well, we have returned to the not knowing, Michael. The, The experience of deeply listening and being present in a way where we are open to what this moment is is in my experience the the best way to address failure that that those who uh face it didn't work and then they open themselves back up to that realm of of openness that that provides the experience for where to go then and what i have seen is that often when I have the most doubt, the most uncertainty, the most sense of failure, if I, in those moments, recommit to the fundamental practice that I I think is critical of this capacity to be present, that that's when things appear that I would never have dreamed of before so for patients and for practitioners i suggest we need to have some kind of daily disciplined activity discipline maybe is a strong word but that helps us reminds us of this place of being in this not knowing state and whether as we mentioned before it's the walk in the woods or the yoga or the meditation uh, whatever practice it might be, doing that on a regular basis is critical to keeping this balance and then, I believe, keeping this openness to not defining this as failure so much, but a continued exploration and my commitment to this exploration that is our life.
2: Mm-hmm. Paul, do you see a difference between practice and discipline?
1: Huh. Huh. Uh, the practice, if we define practice as a, a a regular study or regular activity, then, then no. And, and I, I have to pause, obviously I'm pausing Michael because we, we define practice sometimes as, oh, we're in healthcare practice, right? We're practitioners. And I'm not sure that's the same Meaning as when I think of discipline, it is literally for me this daily activity of, uh, of returning to Ah, the source is the word I would probably use. So for me, discipline has a very defined definition <laughs> that's redundant compared to maybe what other people would uh, use as the word discipline. It is a... a Returning to that which I think is most that I have discovered that is more most crucial for life, and again, it's getting back to this this experience of not knowing.
2: I'm curious when you see patients, what does what does a session look like with you?
1: <laughs> um, it is certainly over the years. Uh, become much simpler. We have at Sciom and and with our graduates, we have practitioners that are incredibly well-trained and skilled in their technical aspects. And I have uh, great admiration for the specialties and skills of, of our instructors, but also where our graduates go later on in their practice. It's, it's really quite uh, moving to me. The, the place that I have uh, stand or, or work in is, is simply keeping to this spot of connection in myself and with the patient. And what that has over the years amounted to is relatively simple treatments and diagnosis. I maybe have some of the simplest diagnoses and treatments going on, but I I believe that intention or that spirit that we've been talking about is is critical to to what I'm doing in practice and for me it is is education it was like the question to me is if I follow this what will be this result just as uh, we're all experimenting with discovering what is the most effective or best way we can interact with people so for me this is as much an experiment as anything else seeking to stay with what I'm now defining source or not knowing, bringing that experience with the patient, giving them instructions that I think help them to experience that directly, even homework in terms of how to be in their body to help them with that and seeing if this, this movement towards place of presence is, is as vital as I believe it is in them taking charge of their life and their health. So it's a, it's a work in progress, Michael.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's practice, right? Work in progress. You've used the term intention a number of times, and this is a term that gets tossed around a lot in the Chinese medicine community. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the difference between intention and imagination.
1: Well, again, in the, our thinking mind... All these words can have different definitions. Uh, We can differentiate diagnoses. We can differentiate between intention and imagination and knowing. uh, And these words can have different meanings. I suggest if we go to the origin of them, just like if we go back to being a little baby, we get to a place of experience in our body however we define an experienced body which is a whole another topic and that origin of experience uh, I suggest is, is something which is not so individualized which is uh, where we were going when I mentioned this uh, brain research that we have this experience of connection with everything and that to me is the fundamental of intention and imagination and if we can get back to remember practice that place then true intention and i would suggest true imagination arises from that and at least in the beginning what i suggest is that that people can for instance have a, a very simple example is follow your breathing or have a single focus in your body that you hold that point there are some simple exercises that can begin to help you have your own experience of this it's very challenging to describe something like if you've never experienced sadness and i keep talking about sadness you don't know what i'm talking about but once you have felt sadness it's obvious and clear to you what that word is about
2: You need an embodied sense of it to really have something to hang your experience on.
1: There you have it. Whether it's embodied imagination, embodied intention, those words to me are not mental anymore. They are completely full-body awareness when I imagine or intend or know something. So that very much, I think, changes the definition of those words.
2: I'm going to have to sit with those a bit. Thank you. I've I've got one more question, and then and I think we'll probably wind this down. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. I'd like to hear what you have to say, and this is both to practitioners and patients about how to get a little more uncomfortable with uncertainty.
1: A little more uncomfortable.
2: I'm sorry. A with little a- more comfortable with certainty. (laughs) Well, well, actually, maybe we should think about getting a little more uncomfortable. Well, that that sure switches things around, doesn't it? Maybe another interview we'll talk about getting more uncomfortable with certainty. But for now, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on getting more comfortable with it.
1: Well, maybe you recall this. Sion sort of had as one of its founding DNA that we would generate uncertainty in our first-year students. Uh, if no other way by having them exposed to very different approaches to practice from Japan, China, Europe, and whatever, that often seem to contradict each other. And and therefore, in that m- m- melu to to have a sense of doubt and uncertainty. What is healing? What is the best way? What is the right way? and often in America, we have to choose between right and wrong. So one of the first steps to me is to, to accept that there is this uh, wide range of possibilities and that there is doubt about what the path is and what the practice is. And with that, that you still have to take steps. You still have to make some decision in that moment, and, and and literally with practice, that starts to generate some interesting balance point between doubt and between the clarity of, I've got to do my best for this person in this moment, because that is the role I have in life. And I cannot try to turn off the uncertainty and the doubt, because that's critical to my deeper understanding, but I also can't wallow in that doubt and not have a very clear intention with the patient. So, this, this sense of opposites needs to find the meeting point. And, and that, to me, is, is vital for both our educational process, but also our practice uh, when we are uh, where you are now, Michael. <laughs>
2: You know, Paul, this is, this is hilarious. I, I am laughing at this last question that I asked you because I remember uh, not just being a first-year student but being on the verge of graduating and being at a party with members of other schools, and I remember talking with one person who was so excited because she was about to go out in the world, and she knew exactly what to do, and she had all this acupuncture stuff dialed in, and my thought was, I am so screwed. <laughs> Because I was about to graduate, and I figured I might maybe know how to begin, but that's all that I knew or thought I knew at the time. And and I'm 15-plus years out now, and what am I doing? I'm calling one of my first teachers to have a conversation about not knowing an uncertainty. So I guess you guys did your job pretty well.
1: It would be interesting for you to... Uh I mean, uh, curiosity about outcomes of education to uh, see if you could locate that uh, person you were talking to from another school and, and see how and what they're doing now. Um, I, I would be real curious to, to find out what their uh, their their place and experience is now. Uh, because certainly, Michael, we, uh, in, in founding the school, we obviously, in as we've had this conversation, this sense of of, of self doubt is believed to be an important component of of deep practice, and at the same time, the ability to transcend it is important. Um, but to have a one sided view of, of of certainty only, uh, yes, uh, we believe whether this is true or not, we believe that that can lead to um, an arrogance, a one-sidedness, a, a blinders, and an inability to look at all the possibilities that in the long run is problematic. But uh, also life brings, you know, uh, it, it, that may work for some people. So that's why I'm honestly curious to know what the, the potential results were with the, the individual you were speaking to.
2: I'm curious as well, and and I suspect I could even locate this person. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to touch back in on that loop and see where things are at 15-plus years later. Thank you for the suggestion. And thank you for the time today. It's uh, wonderful to talk with you and and have this kind of a discussion. You know, usually people think about practitioners as really knowing what they know, and that's what makes them a good practitioner. And to have an opportunity to explore some uncertainty and some not knowing and the value of that in, in the process of healing is just a wonderful opportunity. So thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Michael. And just to add in, at the very end, why not? I believe a healthy dose of faith is critical in this life. I won't define faith here, but uh, maybe we could have that as a conversation another time. Thank you very much for the chance to talk to you. I really enjoyed it.
2: I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture. If so, please take a moment, click on the iTunes review button, and leave a review of the show. And be sure to tune in again next week. We'll be